Hello and welcome. This is Robin Harford from eatweeds.co.uk with another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. I'm here today with John Renston, author of... John, what's the title of your book? It's called The Edible City, A Year of Wild Food. Okay, so the reason that I've asked you to come on the show is I have a lot of people who live in urban environments and... The usual questions keep getting asked, which are, can we forage in a city? I mean, you've written the book on it. Um, But more importantly, the safety aspect. So kind of where do you find clean plants? What about soil, etc., etc.? Do you want to kind of just go freeform with this? Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to consider in the first place is that, that not all cities are the same. I mean, when I... When I wrote The Edible City, I was living in London, and uh, it's a monster, isn't it? It's it's Mm -hmm. 6 million people in Greater London and about 18 million, well, under normal circumstances, not the circumstances we're currently in. In the middle of the daytime, there'd be 18 million people in Greater London. Now, um, when I was looking at moving house, we looked at Bristol, and we were standing in Clifton, and you're, you're in Bristol, and you walk over a bridge, and suddenly you're in the countryside. When you're in central London, you're certainly not going to be able to walk a few hundred yards and then leave the city. So um, a lot really depends on, on the city or the town or the urban conurbation that you're in. But I think there are uh, a lot of really quite uh, obvious or maybe not so obvious little rules that people can uh, employ to keep them safe and also i think there's a few myths as well um okay can i talk to you can i talk to you about that to start yeah with? sure the myths will be good um, i think the concept that, that the city ends and the countryside begins and vice versa is very much a, a, a social construct and I think if you look on a, a good map, you'll see that the tendrils of the countryside reach into the city and the tendrils of the city reach into the countryside. Mm-hmm. Um, and along with that, there's this idea, I think, that, um, you know, c- countryside clean, city dirty. <clears throat> and I found with 20 years of looking at this topic and quite a lot of research that that's pretty much nonsense. There are a lot of areas of the countryside where I absolutely would not go foraging sure. because of soil quality. And yeah. there's some, some amazing areas in, in very central parts of London and other big cities uh, where I'd be completely happy to do so. For someone who's, who's just starting out, what are you yeah. looking for when you go round a gathering ground or a grazing ground? What conditions make you feel comfortable for gathering in that specific habitat or bioregion? Well, well, well. Let, let's say we are in are in a big city. There's a, there's a lot of um, obvious places that you might he- head to. So a city like London is uh, absolutely full of open and green spaces. It's something absurd, like 47% open and green spaces. When you think about London in your mind's wow. eye, you think yeah, more yeah. of kind of blobs of grey than you do of green, really, don't you? Yeah. Um, so the first thing that I would always suggest with anybody who was interested in the concept of foraging is 
the very best place that you can go foraging, and this is so relevant right now, is your most local green space. Rewind three or four months before we were in this uh, strange situation, and if I told you, you know, that there's a, a wild plum trees fruiting prolifically in, in Victoria Park in East London, but you live in Richmond, there's no way you're crossing the city to go and pick some wild fruit. <laughs> but if this is something that takes place at your local bus stop, when yeah. you're on the way to work, then this becomes like a ritual and it can become a, a way to form a lovely emotional relationship with landscape. Um, so what I find is that generally I teach people to... I think you've touched on this topic as well. To start with a few plants, start with a knowledge base that you might already have, like what does sure. dandelion look like, what, what does mint look like. Build on that, but also try and learn within your most local green space. And that doesn't have to be, oh, I wish I was close to Hampstead Heath or I wish I was close to Richmond Common or whatever it might be. In in cities, there are lots of very peculiar um so we could call them new landscapes, linear landscapes, long, thin strips of land that might be neglected, weird little triangles, little bits of ground that don't classify as a, as a park or a common. They may not even have a word to describe them, but often these are, are amazingly interesting and diverse little ecosystems. So first thing I'd say to people is go to your most local green space which right now i mean with the, the the lockdown situation couldn't be more relevant secondly i would suggest that with the with the gift of google you can do a little bit of research and you can look into the history of the land that you are intending to forage on so, okay so um, so just to just to qualify that when you say gift of google what what kind of keywords would you be looking typing in for to find well, let's say i mentioned victoria park in, in 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 east london yeah so if i was considering foraging in an east london park um what i would probably do is i would google that park and i would read a little bit about the history of it and if I was reading about the history of Victoria Park, I'd find out it's been a park for a couple of hundred years. It predates the Industrial Revolution. The soil quality there has never been subjected to industry or agriculture. So as long as you stay away from the edge of the road, chances are the soil quality, which is a very good start, is, is going to be good. And in fact, yeah. I've had the soil quality in Victoria Park tested, and it's great. The flip side of that is, about two miles from there, there's a small park, the name of which escapes me, and they were in the process of uh, kind of refurbishing it and planting it up with lots and lots of amazing edible plants. And um, it's the site of an old bomb factory. Now, I don't know what goes into making bombs, but I'm sure it's not good. And I'm sure you don't really want that in the soil of somewhere that you're foraging. So I would always try and do a little bit of research and see whether the place that I was planning to be picking from had a particular history um, of industry, um, especially in, in, in a big city. That's really good news. So if you're looking on, on maps, so my way of exploring urban environments is I basically step outside and walk. 
um, <laughs> when I when I hit a new a new urban place, I try not yeah. to use my maps or whatever. I actually just use my sense, my kind of inherent sense of direction and just inquisitiveness about oh, well, what's around the corner because. I don't know whether you're like me, but I I certainly know as as being a human, I'm very habituated in my routines. And I can often in the past have lived in places where suddenly someone takes me down a side road that I've never been and I've lived in the place for three years. One of the kind of the the scouting gathering grounds or what I refer to as finding your place is to just start exploring out your front door. I met an author of a book um, a few years ago. He'd written kind of curious walks around Exeter and he gave little games and it was kind of like out your front door, turn left, then turn left, then turn right, then take a third left. And it just opened you up to exploring your landscape, the urban landscape in a way that most people never normally come across. And it's a brilliant way of finding those little quirky places. Like you say, those pockets of green that you normally wouldn't even think about. That if you ask someone, they talk about some park or whatever, a bit of wasteland somewhere. But it's, you know, one of the things that, again, a myth, if we're myth busting, is that somehow you've got to, like you say, you've got to get out of the city and go straight into the countryside to forage or you've got to cross town to forage and and that's just not true i think the closer you are to home the more chance you've got to carry out an act of gentle repetition you could visit a place you could see not much going on except from a novice forager's point of view maybe quite a lot of low growing small little green leafy plants and not be so sure what they are And then three or four weeks later, those same plants will be pretty much labelled if they've got flowers on them. At least there'll be a lot more information at your disposal. And um, I love the way of learning foraging in a very non-academic way. It's a a gentle, linear process that takes place with lots of repetition of um, looking at the same things in different stages of development and building a sort of gentle knowledge base. You go, oh, that that weird little thing has changed a bit. It's now got some spiky leaves or it's now put out a little yellow flower or whatever it might be. I definitely think staying, I mean, I sound like a government manifesto right now, stay local, <laughs> you know. Stay yeah. local is, is, is for, for foraging, is a brilliant way to learn. I, I lived in North London and I lived close to, I don't know, I live in Dorset, but I, I lived uh, for a long time. And I learned more about nature, about plants, about, about all sorts of topics from Cliffold Park, which was like one square mile of North London, than I have learned from the rest of the country combined. And yeah. by the time I left, I... I picked and eaten 175 to 180 different species of edible plant from that park yeah and it wasn't because i was after a clever number and it also wasn't because that's a foraging hotspot or some you know you know these things are nonsense really yeah um it was just because i'd been there a lot and it, each time i went it would it would give up something else it would it would yield something different even when they put down a load of porter cabins to, to do a bit of refurbishing the park, when they took them away, that bare soil 
filled up with about seven or eight different sort of wild spinach species, which I'd never seen growing there, which must have just come in on the wind. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, definitely staying local. And I would say, if I was talking about, like, top tips, uh, can I give you a couple of my top tips? Sure. Far away. Um, so my first top tip for novice foragers and for experienced foragers is no nibbling. And what I mean by that is if you can identify a delicious oxide daisy and you can try a bit of your delicious oxide daisy and you can graze along the hedgerows as you do, that's one thing. But if you are trying to identify plants, taking a bite of them is not part of the ID process. That's what you do with food. You stick it in your mouth. You don't stick things in your mouth when you don't know 100% what they are. And oh, totally, totally. I mean, yeah. how many emails have you had from people saying, I've been trying to work this out, and I've been trying to work that out, and it tastes a bit like that. And at that point, you're like, no, do not. Yeah, so, yeah just, to, just to kind of push that point, um, I'm a big fan of nibbler and I, of nibbling, and I teach a lot about nibbling. But you only, 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 only ever nibble, as in bring a plant anywhere near your mouth once you're 100% certain. Outside, and so I have this saying, you've, you've got to know it, not think you know it. If you catch your brain going, oh, I think it is, and then you pick it and are about to nibble it, you're in dangerous ground. Because you do not yeah, want to do exactly. that with certain plants. And I've had people who say, oh, I'll just go nibbling everything. And it's like, well, you know what? You're 50 years old and you survived so far. But next week might be the time you end up in the ground for being bloody well, stupid, you and I, basically. Robin, we have a mutual friend who was teaching a, a lovely group of uh, women in Scotland the difference between, I think it was, um, I think he had noble fur, which is edible in one hand, and he had you in the other hand, which is right. extremely toxic. And um, he was chatting and he stuck the wrong one in his mouth. Really? Um, what happened? He was fine. He was fine. But he said the first thing he did was he rang his wife. So, yeah, um, that basically. Just don't don't use tasting things as part of the ID process unless you are a bit more advanced or unless you are already uh, most of the way into that process and you've already identified something. I would also say, and I I think this applies in cities and it also applies in the countryside. All things in, in moderation. Don't, yeah. be, don't be greedy. Don't be greedy with what is potentially a source of food for animals, what is a source of uh, connection with the ecosystem, what is a source of food for other foragers, what might just look nice. But also... Don't be greedy because I think it's sensible to not consistently forage the same plant from the same spot were there to be any issues with potential soil toxicity, etc., etc. I mean, in a true sort of hunter-gatherer style, move around, you know, don't 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 treat nature like the supermarket and get everything from the same aisle. That's really boring anyway, isn't it? Yeah, no, I totally, totally go with that. I've been talking to some mates in America because they've got a real problem. And I know this is a, a, 
a debate and there seems to be this kind of denial often in the foraging community that it doesn't happen. But they have a real problem with some of the wild medicines, not so much mm, not so much the wild foods. I might be corrected on that. But certainly some of the wild medicines have just they're literally gone extinct. You talk to United Plant Savers and you know there's stuff stuff in the States that has just disappeared because of over harvesting. So I've kind of been well, I know digging... That's happened with, I, know, I know that's happened with the... Um, what's the really prized uh, tricholoma mushroom? Uh, Matsuki. Yeah. But then, you know, I think it's weight for weight more expensive than gold or something like that. So, so yeah, sure. when, when something becomes commodified, it then becomes desirable in the wrong kind of way. I mean, yeah, it I've, does. I've, I've, just, I've just always wanted to move around because... I, I don't like the idea of of going right aisle seven hogweed aisle three nettles you know because because even if aisle seven is the spot next to the playground and aisle three is a bit over by the swings whatever it might be I I, I still want to be more fluid in my activity. Um, well, I think if you, well, if you feed if you feed that back to humans as an animal which a lot of people tend to forget. <laughs> oh, you're behaving like an animal. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I am. Well, I am yeah. funny. I am an animal, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, you know, and maybe as people like Michael Pollan have posited that we're, you know, we're grazers. So a grazing animal doesn't just hang out in one pl- clump. It moves around all the time, taking a little bit from here, a little bit from there. I like that as a foraging practice for myself, especially... When beginners are starting, it's like, look for a a plant community that has a lot of bounty within it. So if you just find one one little clump of dandelion, just leave it alone. You know, you really don't. It's so prolific elsewhere. And just keep walking and finding out and mapping. You know, I always try and encourage people to see foraging as a as a as a journey of discovery and an adventure. It's like seeking seeking gold, you know. You're just absolutely digging around and and take a little bit, you know, one or two leaves from one plant community, move on because it's about diversity. It's not about monoculture. We're just going to get dandelion. I know recipes, and I do it, can focus on one plant as a primary ingredient, but the point is, is that you're gathering a large swathe of different plants. Yeah, and I think, you know, if if you're looking for diversity and you're looking for sort of increased fertility, when when you look at the way they teach, for example, say, um, permaculture as opposed to the standard ideas of monoculture, you're trying to create as as many borders, as many edges, as much periphery as you possibly can. And and, and as you know so well, you know, those are the, the places where things are really thriving. You, you go walking deep, deep, deep into a woodland, you don't find that much. You're on, no. the, on the edge of the woods. That's where all the mushrooms are going crazy. They're sporulating and fruiting and trying to, trying to cross the road that's been put in there to colonise the next area. There's all sorts of activity going on on the edge. So, yeah, you keep, you keep walking and you keep moving. And I, I do a little bit of... Um, it's always unsuccessful foraging to order, and I mean for myself, not for other sure, people. So sure. every every April I head out looking for morels, and 20 years, every April I am unsuccessful. 
But every year I always come back with a great big basket of all sorts of other things that I've found in the process. Yeah. You know, I was just going to say, I think if we're looking at foraging in urban environments, these are, it goes without saying, these are unusual times. And you know that when uh, we spoke a few days ago, my main concern was here I am, I'm like Mr. Urban Foraging. I've been encouraging people in, in urban environments to engage with their local landscape for like two decades. And now I've suddenly got reservations about creating a, a situation where people are lingering on their, their permitted um, exercise for the day. And I, I think when I'm normally teaching people foraging, I'm talking to them about spending quite a bit of time with plants and getting to know those plants. And under the circumstances we're in at the moment, from my point of view, uh, talking to people about how they act in very, very populated cities, I think people need to stick. If they're novice foragers, they need to stick with, and if they're not, to be honest, they need to stick with what they know and that means things that they can collect quickly and yeah. not basically spending a load of time hanging out, trying to work things out. And that, in a way, restricts quite a lot of the plants that I would suggest for people. Having yeah. said that, there's, there's an awful lot of plants that I wouldn't suggest that I teach people about via a podcast. It's a, it's a very personal hand-on experience, isn't it? If you're teaching people about members of the carrot family where you've got a lot sure. of the delicious and, and the deadly often holding hands you need you need to be right down and dirty with people and, and be involved and, and in a first-hand experience but at, at the moment i think we could equip people with um I'm, i hate the word fail safe but with a a list of easy to forage plants providing they think about the other safety aspects. I don't want to make foraging into a scary topic. It really is not. With a little bit of common sense, um, it's a brilliant thing to do. It's a lovely way to en engage with the landscape, to, to help with your health and your nutrition and get some free food and do something with your kids and get off screens and, and a, a million other climbs onto Soapbox pro foraging reasons. But I do think people need to be mindful of, well, I think everybody is mindful of our current situation, but I, I, I think it's important that people's behaviour is, if they're going to go foraging, is adapted to take that into mind. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I, for me personally, I know I've, I've come under a lot of attack on social media in certain quarters of the kind of, the histrionics and the rather dramatic claims of, oh, the NHS is under enough pressure. We don't want you're just encouraging people to to basically screw up and end up in A&E, putting even more more stress on the, the limited resources that are available. And my answer to that is you don't eat anything you don't know 100 percent. Like you say, in this particular time, you need to be able to identify it quickly. So everyone knows stinging nettle. Pretty much everyone exactly. knows dandelion. <clears throat> Just keep it at that level at this time. So have you got a kind of list of plants? I mean, there was 
for me, you can when you hear this list, you can get your wildflower books out and start doing the kind of has it got this and that. But what I think you're saying, John, is that you're trying to encourage people not to spend like an hour IDing a plant, which because of the curiosity factor could attract other people. Because let's face it, humans are a bit like magnets. You know, you yeah. sit in a you you start staring at a plant and fiddling around it in a, in a slightly odd way other than the usual stand back and observe and people are going to get curious and try and come in and engage with you and that's where potential problems could happen and yeah you know as well i'm not necessarily the best one in the world for following rules but right now i'm doing what i've been told and i'm i'm as much as possible staying in and even though part of me is going well if I went to the beach, it's about five miles away. That's also my exercise and also I'm sourcing food. But actually, it's kind of not. It's taking the piss. So I don't really want to encourage anybody to, 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 to do that. There's a few other things to be thoughtful of. And obviously, there are poisonous plants and there's poisonous mushrooms. But as I've been telling people on my mushroom walks for over a decade, if, if the ultimate destination of the mushrooms that you pick is on your compost heap, not on your frying pan. They can never harm you. They're not going to jump out at you from behind a bush. You know, I think people are fungi phobic, aren't they? They um, are, very. I think it's worth staying away from busy roads if you, as much as possible, researching the soil quality, being mindful of things like dog poo and dog wee. I love uh, flower beds that have been turned over by the parks authority and then put stakes all around them and then nobody or anything can get in there except wild plant seeds which just come in and populate and it's lovely i think it's really important to wash everything not mushrooms necessarily and not but if you're in an urban environment i mean it's not in a plant's interest to accumulate heavy metals It's, it's not part of its odus operandi but that doesn't mean it won't happen but sure if there is toxicity in the soil there's going to be a lot more of it present in the soil than there actually is in the plant matter so one thing you should just do is make sure you wash off anything like that from your research where do you find most of those kind of heavy metals accumulating which parts of the plant that maybe people if they are slightly kind of um sensitive i suppose in the, in the root, I mean, sure. low-growing low, low herbaceous plants, generally speaking, um, I, would, I would gather things away from busy roads. I mean, my experience of this is like when I soil-tested Clissold Park, I, I sent it off to a company who um, kind of did it as proper due diligence before I published my book, and, and I knew what the answer was already, but I wanted a bit of science behind it. And um, we, we tested under the parameters of soil quality for home vegetable growing. Okay. So that they test in, in, in parts per million. And what they were testing for was uh, cyanide, uh, glyphosate, um, things like that. I can't, I can't remember specifically at the time. But everything came in comfortably within the tolerance that they would consider acceptable for home vegetable growing and that was on the edge of Clissold Park and on the edge of Victoria Park and then in the centre of the park the soil quality came in even better 
Yeah. Um, which was really, really encouraging for me. Absolutely. Um, other than soil quality, the the other questions that people ask me continually are, you know, what about foxes, badgers, other animals? What about dog mess, your dog urine, human urine? I get that you're saying to wash the plants, but, but what are the kind of, I mean, there's vials disease that people can yeah, get. Yeah, for sure. But um, I mean, uh, I I often defer to um people who have allotments. You know, when when people say that, it's like, well, do you ask those questions when you your friend hands you a bag of vegetables from their allotment in London or whichever yeah, city sure. or town they're in? So, what's your take on that kind of stuff? Because I know you wrote a bit about you touched on it in your book. Twenty years of eating an awful lot of things from an urban environment, and I haven't had any problems personally, or heard of anybody that has in, in like a first hand I've never had an email from somebody saying I ate that and it made me sick. What I, what I try to do is like I say I research if I can the history of the area and then I also look at the lie of the land and um, if you're looking at the edge of a pathway and it looks like you're you know you're walking straight into a park and it's just the edge little bit of the park this is obviously where everybody lets their dog wee and poo this is so use a bit use a bit of common sense yeah and then when i come to look at the plants themselves it's very much like you choose produce in in a in a supermarket or in a, in a food shop and um, if i'm looking for stinging nettles i'm looking for a lovely fresh vibrant almost more yellow than green that lovely happy color i'm not yeah. looking for something that looks a a bit scorched or something that looks sort of desaturated and a bit dowdy i'm always looking for things that look extremely good in terms of in terms of we i mean our we and dog we are, are you know quite acidic if you if you we on some plants if they're being repeatedly weed on they're going to be scorched they're not sure. going to look good Sometimes the, the, the most amazing place for things to grow is the least appropriate place to forage it. Like if you look under an awful lot of urban trees, you'll find the most wonderful crop of chickweed. Yeah. With all the assistance of all that lovely nitrogen from dog's weed, it's, it's not really the place to forage it, but <laughs> it's a place where it grows prolifically. Dog pea yeah, areas sure. are good to ID plants. Well, there's that, that lovely French botanist who goes around. I've sl slightly stolen his idea. He goes around his town, his local town, and he just labels all the plants on the pavement with chalk. Mm, and mm. they're growing out the side of the bus stop and everywhere. I think it's also important to bear in mind, you know, like most big parks have got a, like a no dog area. But foxes and badgers and rats and all those, they can't read that sign. Sure. So... A bit of common sense, a bit of common sense, really. And and um, it's a lovely lady up in the north of England uh, called Mina. She said, never munch on a hunch. And yeah. uh, not absolutely 100% about your identification, about the environment that it's in. If, if there's anything that is causing you concern, just don't do it. Yeah. You know? What kind of plants have you got? I know you mentioned you got a small list of the kind of the go-to, yeah. easy to 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 gather without breaking all the kind of containment rules that we're all subjected to at the moment. So what what have you got that you? Well, what I've done, I've got a wrote really quick list. Yeah, so we're in April. We're at the beginning. We're on April the tenth during this this recording. Yeah. Um, Stinging nettles. I mean, 
the idea of, of these things is looking at plants that have multiple crops, that if you become familiar with them, you'll be able to return to them later in the year when they give you something else. And, and very often we say something like dandelion, you've got three different edible crops with, say, uh, wild garlic or something. You've got five different edible crops and you can, you can enjoy these at different stages um, by learning to identify one plant. So with stinging nettles right now, that's a, that's a brilliant plant to forage for. Um, you can um, you can collect them with gloves and scissors or you can get stung a little bit or you can collect them with gloves and just tug at the plant and the point at which the top part of the plant maybe the top four to six inches naturally yields and goes that's the point at which you've got all the lovely soft fibers coming away and the more woody ones down below and numerous culinary uses for nettles. I've, I've done a video about it, but I think pretty much every forager I know has done a video about how to pick and cook nettles at the moment. So there's no shortage of, of that online. Dandelions are, are a really useful plant to forage for. You've got um, uh, a green leaf, a salad leaf, albeit quite a bitter one unless you can find them growing in long grass where where they will have been forced in the same way as you you force rhubarb so they will have been starved of sunlight and they've had to pull their nutrients up through their root system so they've grown without so much photosynthesis so they're paler and a lot less bitter and you've got flowers which you can make sauces and syrups and vinegars and wines and all sorts of things from and you've got an edible root on dandelion as well you can dig the root up and you can you can do all sorts of things with a dandelion root you can you can roast it like a vegetable and it will release lots of its uh, lots of its sugars and and it's a tasty thing to eat or you can marinate it in some soy or something like that can you we just can touch on the fact it. that if if we are digging up roots that you do need landowners permission Absolutely. So that really comes down to sort of common sense and the law. And, and you do need the landowner's permission to, to uproot anything. I, always, I used to run um, a lot of walks for groups of students. And I used to say to them, well, you all live in a communal house with a completely neglected back garden, don't you? And they go, well, how do you know? And I go, well, because you're students. Everybody does. <laughs> get, get out there and you'll have loads of dandelion and loads of burdock and you can dig it up. Um, right now, um, cherry blossoms are, are coming through. For me, I think the, the primary crop in sort of wild or semi-wild terms is the blossoms, not the cherries themselves. The, I'd like to leave the cherries for the birds. Wild cherry flavour varies enormously. And yeah. um, for my sins, what I really like is those ones that are big, fat, juicy cherries that are farmed in Kent, you know. Um, but cherry blossom commercially they make a, a cherry blossom syrup in japan which is amazing and those blossoms they're what gardeners call showy they're big fat bunches of blossoms yeah yeah and you can cook them up with a little water and make some delicious almondy essence kind of syrup from them or you can just eat eat the eat the blossoms the blossoms are a kind of a lottery really as with a lot of wild foods it's um the blossoms will taste of three things they'll either taste sweet or bitter or of almond oil essence, or of any one, two, or three of those in any kind of combination. Right. So that, you know, that what's the expression? Suck it and see. That yeah. really does, really does apply to that. And I, I think, um, if you're in any doubt about identifying a cherry tree, <clears throat> there's enough information 
online and you're looking for a tree that has got lots and lots of horizontal stripes all over it. They're called lens cells. They're part of its um, um, respiratory system. But they're very so stripe, stripes on what? On the blossoms or on the bark? Stripe, or sorry, sorry. Stripes on the bark, on the actual, on the tree itself, you've got lots yeah. of horizontal stripes. I've also got mint on my list. And, and the reason I put mint on here is mint isn't really, unless you're buying mint from the shop, mint isn't exactly a wild plant. It's in the UK, it's 50 or 60 different wild plants. But I think everybody can identify mint by its smell. And we've got a lot of different varieties of wild mint in the UK. So long as you pick a plant which looks like mint and smells like mint, square stem. So if you get the stem in your hands and you roll it between your fingers, it's got four distinct sides to the stem and its leaves come in opposite and opposing pairs that means one one pair sticks out one way and the next pair sticks out the other way next pair sticks out the other way and so on and so forth and it looks like mint and it smells like mint it's gonna be mint and it's hairy um, yeah yeah for sure and i i, I don't know about you I've, i mean i've done a i did a blog called how very flippantly titled how to identify 50 plants in 10 minutes but it's about how to learn all the members of the mint family yeah. by by their key characteristics. There's that lovely chap in the state, Thomas Elpel, who wrote a book called Botany in a Day, and yeah. it's all about the, the patterns method of recognition, and and um, this is basically the patterns of the mint mint family: square stems, opposite and opposing leaves, strong smells, and there's some little there's lots of other things in the mint family that don't smell like mint, but generally speaking it's, it's a good it's a good family for foragers yeah looking at and just to just to quickly interject again um you mentioned thomas opel's book botany in a day and i have a lovely friend mark williams who actually helped thomas put together the latest edition and mm. mark has a website called botanyeveryday.com and he currently mm. has an online botany class it takes you through that book it's on donation so if you're interested just go and hit mark's website botanyeveryday.com i've seen that that looks really good yeah, yeah no mark mark is a phenomenal ethnobiologist so this is this is american mark williams not lovely scottish foraging teacher mark williams yeah not the scottish one <laughs> the american one there's quite a few of them around actually mark williams is are there? Um, <laughs> Yeah, two, I, yeah, two common names. <laughs> so, um, also on my list of easy, easy to identify, and this isn't going to be out yet, but this is going to be coming through, which is oxide daisy. So, if anybody mm. can identify a look, because I'm going with plants that basically kids in the UK can identify. If anybody can identify a daisy, which is a little baby lawn daisy and it's got a yellow composite middle and it's got a ray of white petals around the outside if you imagine that had been down the gym for about three months and ended up enormous so if you come across what basically looks like <laughs> a daisy with a daisy flower that's maybe the size of a ping pong ball on it and it's about two foot high that is an oxide daisy and that's yeah. got edible leaves and it's got edible flowers the only thing you need to be wary of is your own haste because if it's got a yellow middle and it's got yellow petals 
it's not an oxide daisy, it's ragwort, which is potentially poisonous. But yeah. basically, if you come across a white and yellow, looks like a daisy, but it's really tall, like, like I say, about two foot tall with a bloody great flower on it, that's oxide daisy, and that's a really tasty flower, really tasty leaves. And then with that, you can, you can do what I often teach people, which is learning your plants in reverse. So you learn them when it's got all of its ID information on show. In this case, the, the fail-safe is this bloody great big daisy flower on the top. Yeah. And you work backwards. You look at the leaves, and you can see the shape of those leaves, and you can become familiar with those leaves. So the following season, you'll be able to identify this plant, possibly because you're back in exactly the same location, you're staying local, and also because you've become familiar with what they look like and you'll know what they look like before the flower comes out to, com to complete the picture for you. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so at the moment, online um, and just about everywhere, people are going wild garlic crazy, certainly yeah. in the foraging community. So amazingly prolific plant it's very common when you find it i mean the, the woods up the road from me is, there's a square mile of the stuff quite literally one of the great things about wild garlic is it absolutely stinks of garlic there are no half measures with it and if you um, make sure that what you're picking reeks of garlic um, and you follow a few other little safety rules. You've got a wonderful plant which has got edible flowers, edible seeds, edible stems, edible leaves and edible bulbs. So it's got five potential food crops. I would say the, the hazards inherent in picking wild garlic are the other plants that it grows with that are not wild garlic. Yeah. And... The, the problem, I suppose, is that when people find an abundant source of free, <laughs> delicious food, they get a bit excited and they grab too much of it. And that's the point at which you're going to pick things like lords and ladies or bluebells or dog's mercury or probably a couple of other plants that grow intermingled with, with wild garlic. So what, what I would suggest for something like this is, first of all, you've absolutely be sure with the smell uh, if, if, if you if you decide to pick something and you poison yourself and you'll get out of jail free card is well it smelled a bit garlicky that is not enough it's absolutely think of garlic i'm considering whether it should be on the list now to be honest because <clears throat> of the things that grow with it yeah there's um, quite a lot i have to say that i was in <laughs> wales when yeah no not wales i was in cumbria and um we were coming down with my friends out of the woods and I saw this guy with a carrier bag coming up the road and he leapt into the foot into the wood and within about five minutes had leapt back out with a full carrier bag of supposedly wild garlic and I, I had a, a leaf of lords and ladies in my hand and as I came up to him I went what you got there and he went I've got what you've got in your hand and I went really I said, what's that then? And he said, oh, wild garlic. I said, no, this isn't wild garlic. This is lords and ladies and it's poisonous. And he went yeah. ashen. And he said, yeah. blimey, I'm a chef. I'm about to, to serve the wild garlic for like the covers for, for lunch. And I said, well, you need to go through it. 
So I took him through the ID because it, it once you clock it, it's actually very easy to see the difference. Yeah, for sure. But it is that thing of of when you gather, don't be greedy. You know, we're we're so used and indoctrinated by supermarkets that we don't have to think is a carrot a carrot. But in the wild, they're not monoculture. Monoculture is where everything else other than that primary plant is growing, has been basically annihilated. But in the wilds, like you said earlier, you had that wonderful, what was that saying you said? You said, delicious and deadly holding hands. And that's a a really good, good saying. And people do need to be aware about it. Be gentle with plants. You do. It's not a, it's not a race. It's not a fight. It's about respect and also, the problem with grabbing a bunch of plants and snipping them or cutting them is you're going to get a load of rubbish quality leaf matter and plant matter in there yeah. that you wouldn't want to eat. So be dutiful. I think that's the word. Um, and diligent and respect the plant communities. You know, they are they are they allow us to breathe. So we don't just go in and just trash them. We go in and we carefully gather and some people, some of my mates in the States, they're very conscientious about this. So they say that when you have gathered, you shouldn't be able to look at that plant community and see that a human has gathered from it. And I think that's a really good thing to bear in mind. Now, that doesn't necessarily or isn't going to necessarily happen all the time. But certainly as a gathering protocol, I think it's important. The other one is to maybe not so much in an urban environment, but, you know, Make yourself a bit invisible. Don't be showy about it. You know, be like an, a deer in the woods. You know, they're very, they're very big. They're very, you can see them very easily. But because of the way they carry themselves through the wood, they're actually very hard to see as well. No, I really, I really agree with that. <clears throat> and the way that I've done, done a ton of my foraging in urban environments is, it's not because what I'm doing is illegal. It's just basically because I don't want. I have to explain myself to everybody all the time. So yeah. when I would run a, a walk and I'd meet a group of people, I'd walk up swinging a basket so they can recognise me. They either go, "That guy's very comfortable about his sexuality," or "He must be the forager," <laughs> you know. But, or both. But when, I'm out, when I'm out doing my own foraging, I am not flouncing through the park swinging a wicker basket. I've no. got a nice little cloth bag, and yeah, I am crouch down in amongst the nettles i'm not hiding but yeah you're being you're being kind of respectful and being a bit bit subtle about it can i come back to the wild garlic for a sec sure i think i think what you're saying is 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 brilliant and you know i want to say you know right on brother when you're talking about being respectful of everything if you if you can learn to identify a wild garlic leaf and this is a leaf that's called a lanceolate leaf. That means it's spear-shaped. So it's pointy at the top, and it comes into a tapering point as it joins the stem at the bottom, and it absolutely stinks of garlic. If you can learn to identify that leaf, and when you take that leaf, you trace it down to the bottom, and you snip off that and its, and its adjoining uh, leaves, and you put those in your bag or your basket, whatever, you're not going to be mixing up other plants. All the other plants I've mentioned, if you held one up, if you held a wild garlic leaf up, and you held up uh, a bluebell, you held up lords and ladies, you held up dog's mercury, whatever it was, it's going to be really obvious. It's only going to be not obvious if you're hasty, greedy, and, and not 
behaving with the mindset that you've you've just discussed. I just don't want anybody to end up uh, putting themselves in, in danger, really. Sure. First and um, foremost, so safety first. Just kind of over the pudding a little bit. Um, the other things on my list, and they're not necessarily... Well, right now, uh, Primrose and Primula. So uh, a lot of people can recognise Primula as the garden plant, which is a, um, a domestic version of wild Primrose. Every year when I post some pictures of Primrose, somebody comes up with, that's protected. It, yeah. It's not protected. It's not a protected plant. Wild cowslips are protected primrose is very common um you're not gonna sustain yourself particularly from this what you can do is you can gather primrose flowers which is a beautiful little yellow flower grows on a, a low growing it has these beautiful um they're called obvate leaves which is like a kind of upside down oval and uh, very sort of light pale green. I think a lot of, you know, if you look online, you can find a nice picture of Primrose or Primula. And uh, the wild version have these lovely little uh, pale yellow flowers that are very sweet, they're floral, they're really nice in a, I don't know if they have any medicinal value going there at all, but they make a really kind of calmative tea just because they've got such a nice, gentle, soft, everything's going to be all right kind of flavour to them. And um, and they're sweet. And um, and our friend Fraser likes to likes to make wine with primrose flowers. And yeah. you can use the leaves sparingly in a salad. I think a bit of a strong flavour. So I'm introducing people plants, often plants that they know, and sometimes ones that they don't, that they can engage with on multiple occasions throughout the year, and will give them different food sources. And uh, I think it's a wonderful way to learn foraging and a wonderful way to engage with the plants and to engage with nature, et cetera, et cetera. You know, right now there's quite a few plants because of the way in which you'd learn them and because of safety concerns that I'm not going to bring into this list. But if I was writing my like my top 10 survival plants that you really want to know, it's going to be a different list to this one. I think. If you're picking primrose flowers right now and you're picking them sparingly, you don't go crazy, it's a nice thing to do. It's a pleasant activity for somebody who's stuck on the 16th floor of their flat in Bethnal Green and goes for a walk in the park with their kids and they're able to pick some little flowers, engage with the process, bring them back, look in a little book, maybe identify them, maybe draw them, maybe do stuff like that. I just... Apart from the aspect of collecting food, I think being able to do something like that right now emotionally ticks a lot of other boxes. The whole aspect of when a plant is in flower, like John said earlier, you know, uh, what did you say? Learn plants in reverse. You know, primrose mm. is classic. Take yeah, sure. t- take a li- take a one one flower, one stem, one leaf, and go home with your kids. Get them to draw it. Get them to pay attention fine-tune your observation skills because a lot of people don't see plants in botany it's called plant blindness and one of the ways to get through plant blindness is to take a plant put it in a in a vase and draw it and i do have to stipulate these drawings are not for, for public consumption you know i'm appalling at drawing flowers that's why you never see any of my drawings online um, but that's not the point. I'm not doing it for someone else. I'm doing it for me to develop a deeper relationship 
from a kind of observation point of view and drawing is really really important so you know you're bang on the money there John. Yeah, my drawings my drawings are awful too my drawings are terrible but it's a really rewarding process and i really like my own drawings it's a bit like your own singing in the bath it's crap <laughs> but it's, it, it, it serves a purpose the rest of my list they're kind of with you know, other things are coming in and things are going out. We could include crow garlic on this list, which is basically wild chives. And a lot of people yeah. can identify chives. It's, it's got these beautiful, single, round, pointy, long stems. It looks like domestic chives. If you're looking at a grassy bank or something, it's a totally different type of green. It's a, br- it's a green that's got a lot more blue in it, a kind of cyan colour. And you yeah. can see it against the background i mean I, I love you know when people think about it they go, yeah it's greens there's so many things that are discovered that are described as greens but very often the the dominant color in those greens will be something else and that will be how when you're really familiar with it that you spot it at 200 yards like yeah. like seeing an old friend in a crowd of people you just it's more like facial recognition yeah. ultimately than, than anything to do with botany very much, I think. And again, that goes back to the plant blindness, that the more we we go out and engage with plant communities, the more our eyes fine tune. And and brilliant example of what you said, you know, it's like seeing a, a lost, long lost friend in a crowd of people. You know, they all they're all humans, but they stand out because you know them well. I mean, I think I could tie on to this things like Rose, because um there is numerous varieties of, of domestic and wild rose and they've got edible petals and they're going to produce edible rose hips and uh, they've got when the leaves are young they've got edible leaves that you can use for tea and you could look at blackberry in exactly the same way as that you know they've got edible fruits and they've got they've got uh, ed- edible leaves at the right time of year the other reason i include those is because from a point of view of people in the UK being able to identify them, it's very easy. And then, you know, the, the year will roll on. I hope, to be honest, that, that quite a lot of the things that would spring to mind as, as we come around to autumn, that <clears throat> this is a conversation about foraging, not a conversation about foraging in lockdown, really. I would, I would also say that the way I've always taught foraging and the way I taught myself foraging was multifaceted but one thing that was really useful was learning a couple of plant families and like i say learning the mint family is really handy and be fun thing to do with kids as well you know you yeah could sure them. you could do a little dance about how the leaves go that way then the leaves go that way then leaves the kitchen raving if you're doing the, the opposite and opposing leaves dance um and there's the cabbage family is also a really good plant family to look at. We've got about 100 wild members of the cabbage family in the UK, and none of them are poisonous, even though a few of them will taste pretty horrible. And some of them, if you tried to eat your own body weight in, you're going to give yourself an upset stomach. But, you know, sure. that's going to apply to a lot of things. I'm sure you've got tons of information about this. And I've I've written on... Forage London. I've I've written a blog about how to identify members of the cabbage family, and I've also written a blog about how to identify members of the mint family. And within those, you're then you're then moving into areas of of safety because 
you know that you're if, if you are in the right plant family you're not going to encounter plants that, that are po- poisonous there's nothing on my list here from the carrot family far far too many risks so when people if people are considering something like wild garlic or anything that's over in that kind of allium lily iris sort of department that they've got to be so so careful about this issue of smell which is why you know i come back to it wild garlic utterly bloody reeks of garlic if 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 it doesn't it's not it the rule is if you are not a hundred percent an absolute hundred percent and an old mentor of mine marcus harrison once described it as you need it's like going into a news agent you're looking for milk your hand reaches out gets the milk your brain doesn't even engage always oh, that milk isn't it milk it is milk and that's what you need to have when you meet a plant don't put it in yeah, unless your sure. hand reaches out. Oh, primrose, boom. Job done. Yeah, for sure, which is why, especially in the current situation, I don't want to encourage anybody to do anything that's stupid or to do anything that's hasty. And I, I think if you, if we're sticking to things that people know, you know, like I say, nettle, dandelion, cherry, mint, things like that, yeah. um, I think people are on... Uh, sensible or safe ground if they're if they're being sensible and then as i'm sure you, you know you 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 must have written about this a lot in a way um plant id is just the entry level that's sure. the beginning of the whole process it, it's then finding out what you can do with this wonderful thing you've got it's finding out what the history of it is what numerous different people have, have done i mean we've spoken about this you know you'll be you'll be foraging for a plant for 15 years and then one day you'll think i wonder what that bit of it's like or i wonder if i do that and suddenly you've discovered something new about it that that you hadn't come across or when you're teaching and you get a group of people say can you eat the root on that and you go i actually never considered it i don't know so we you know so it's it's a constantly evolving process isn't it totally totally and we're all learning from each other and that's the one of the joys of of the foraging community is that people just share their discoveries. So whatever you do with it, it's, you know, if you, I mean, I always wanted to set this wild food challenge or something like dandelion and just get people to to get dandelion, create something with it and post it on Instagram or, or some other social media with a, with a hashtag and, and just see how far it can go. It's just, impressing that you know one of one of the things like wild garlic you know everyone does pesto well that's that that's great that's really good if you're just starting out making pesto is a fantastic thing to do with wild garlic but what else can you do with it what other bits of of it like the flowers or the buds can you do with do with wild garlic what i do encourage is for people to get in touch with their own inner creativity the and the that comes from people feeding back to me on courses you know, the frustration with, with cooking programs like MasterChef, etc. You know, you do not, again, you're doing it for you. You don't have to instantly post it on Instagram. It's about exploring and playing in the kitchen, playing with your senses as you're creating dishes and starting to trust that you do actually know how to cook, just might not look particularly Michelin star quality work of art. So what? It's about you developing a deep relationship with the cooking plants in your kitchen and seeing what you can come up with. And that can be as simple as you want. I do really simple, simple food, or it can be as complex and artistic as you want to go, depending on what your 
kind of nature is, I suppose. Do you know, you know, for for me right now, I was um, I was thinking the other day about when I when I wrote the Edible City. One of the things I put in the introduction was about you know finding nothing more rewarding than uh, cooking for my friends and family and my loved ones with with food that I'd foraged myself. And I wrote it and I meant it, but I'd never really, really fundamentally experienced that until about I thought I had but I hadn't about two weeks ago and we're in lockdown and we're walking along and I was picking plants with my son and talking about what we're going to do and what we're going to cook and how that's going to be nice and I really did experience that sense of of fundamentally uh, providing I suppose and that was a nice nice experience and a nice um, nice to have a, a, a genuine and almost kind of brand new emotion after 20 years of foraging from 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 something that I've been doing for such a long time. And I thought I felt that, but I realised I'd never quite totally got it, even though even though I'd written it in the introduction to my book. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's one of my most pleasurable aspects of cooking is making so I do lots of kind of tapas. Those who've listened to my stuff before know that I do lots of tapas styles. And I love spending most of a day gathering the plants, coming back, making that dish, setting up beautiful kind of... We sit on the floor in my house when we eat, when we have friends over, putting out nice throws on the ground and making it a beautiful experience for people. Um, The word kinship comes to mind. I was in an airport in Dubai one year and... A Muslim family came over and we were there for 14 hours and they shared their food and they put their cloth down and sat down. And that was the inspiration for me. It was like, you know, there's a real depth in this relationship, even though we're actually strangers. And, you know, in, in Islam, there's this concept, I think it's Zatak, which is you you give to people who are less fortunate than you. And at that point, we didn't have any food. They did. And they invited us to eat. And obviously... It was the men that we ate with. My partner, she ate with the women and I ate with the men. Um, But there was a quality and a richness to that meeting of strangers. And it was that sitting on the ground and sharing food. And there's something very beautiful and wholesome about gathering food with or without your friends and then making it for your friends and sharing the bounty that you've discovered for sure isn't it you know it's 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 the way we've existed for the majority of our time on this planet and and the way that most people and the way that we exist now is is become the norm but it isn't the norm thank you john for coming on the show been trying to get you on for a long time we finally got there is there anywhere, where can people get hold of you if they want to follow up on your work? They can look on my website, which is foraglondon.co.uk. They can find me on Instagram or Facebook. Um, I mean, that's about it, really. Um, they, yeah. can, they can find my book online, The, the Edible City. Yeah, and, I'm going to be putting all, I'll be putting links to your social media kind of hangouts and your website in the show notes. It's really nice to have a chat. Yeah. Thanks.